Hello, it's Tuesday, 5th of July. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bauman and I will look back across the first six months of 2022 by picking out the top 12 travel talking points. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello wherever you are in the world and thanks for listening in. So today it's time to take stock of all that's happened in a fairly hectic first half of 2022. Hannah and I have put together a list of the 12 key travel and tourism developments that we think define the year to date and set the scene for the challenges and opportunities up ahead for the rest of 2022. This list includes some very encouraging news coming out of China, so stay tuned for that. But Hannah, let's dive straight in. Let's go straight to number one, which is... Singapore removing its vaccinated travel lanes. Last week, of course, we were talking with Sumi Surian from Phuket Hotels Association all about Phuket and Phuket Sandbox and them removing all of their restrictions from the 1st of July, finally. Well, Singapore did that and they, they did that earlier, didn't they? They removed their vaccinated travel lanes to switch to this vaccinated travel framework. Now, when was that, Gary? When did they do that? Yeah, I look back on this. So it's pretty interesting. Uh, the vaccinated travel lane program was actually launched on the 21st of September last year. And through the next sort of five, six months, 32 countries were actually included on that list. But as we were discussing earlier in the year, Hannah, there were caps on the number of arrivals and departures on the, v- um, the VTL scheme. As demand was developing through Changi, it was becoming very much the case that uh, demand was probably outstripping supply. So on the 1st of April, Singapore said, and this is the words of the Civil Aviation Authority of Singapore, Singapore is taking a major step forward to restore air travel connectivity to the world, to rebuild and reclaim Singapore's position as a premier air hub. It did say, and it went on to say, which I thought was quite interesting, something we discussed, Hannah, about how the VTL scheme had basically become successful and was basically phasing itself out. So the CAAS said, the VTL has served as an effective pathfinder to help us adjust and refine our protocols and to build public confidence in reopening our borders safely to vaccinated travellers. I guess, Hannah, there's probably no more defining statement of the first half of 2022 in Southeast Asia than that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and you know, they saw immediate results. So April 2021, um, Singapore had close to 300,000 visitors. March, they had about 120,000. So it, it more than doubled simply by removing those restrictions as to which countries could come in, removing those quotas. Um, and since then, of course, you know, they removed the vaccinated travel lanes, but they still had testing in place. Uh, We'll talk about that a bit later, um, just in general across the region. But of course, every step that they took that removed more barriers, the arrival numbers have increased. Yep, absolutely agree. And they've reopened or or are in the process of reopening um, some of the terminals that were were closed down during COVID-19. And, and, you know, the new terminal that's going to be built, it is going to go ahead as well. So Singapore looks like it's going gonna, it's gonna to fast track itself towards expansion over the coming years. Absolutely. So let's move on to number two then, which has to be Bali, right? Bali finally, finally reopening. I've said a couple of times recently on the podcast, this was something that we really thought would happen July 2021, wasn't it? And it really took until the first quarter of this year 
for Bali to really significantly open. Yeah, I've kind of lost track of the number of times Bali was supposed to reopen in, in recent months and recent years as well. Um, a lot of plans were put forward. Some of those were stalled. It looked as though it was going to happen in early February. That was the official announcement, but no flights actually started to come in. And as we spoke to Simona and Melina from the Bali Hotels Association a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, it was really the, the, the end of March when things started to happen, when flights started to come in, when tourists started to come back. And it's looking, you know, I mean, you look at some of the figures there, you look at the traffic flows, which look awful in Bali at the moment. The tourism is back there. Both Melina and Simona said that airlift is an issue. There aren't still enough flights to fill hotel in inventories. But I guess the island itself is recovering, is trying to find its way back to tourism. Big surge seems to be happening and you know, things need to, to, to take their time to, to work through. It's going to take time to settle down. But uh, yeah, Bali's back on the map for sure. Yeah, exciting. So let's move on to our third kind of top talking point. And I've just alluded to this really, is the removal of pre-flight PCR tests, not only for Singapore, but across the whole region. Yeah, this was vital, wasn't it? I mean, this had to happen. It was becoming such a, a pain point, really, for, for the whole travel industry. Governments were opening their borders. Airlines were, were trying to get more flights in. You know, tourism boards were starting to market again. Travelers were looking and searching to, to make travel bookings. But this PCR test was, it was definitely um, a disincentive to travel. It was costly. Uh, there were concerns that, you know, would you test positive? It, it just made life more difficult, particularly in Thailand. If you tested positive or you arrived in Thailand, you know, there was these concerns that you'd be sent to quarantine. And Sumi said last week that it was just becoming clear that although Thailand had made the boldest move, the first move to, to open, it still had too many restrictive policies in place. And as other countries around the region were starting to remove PCR tests, pretty much everybody had to follow in a sort of domino motion. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And we, we saw that kind of quite rapidly, I think. So yes, the initial reopening, if we talk, let's say Malaysia or Singapore, they were reopening, but you still had to test before you flew in. You'd normally still have to test on arrival as well. Um, and like you say, quickly that it, you know, it, it becomes very costly to do that. It's massive disincentive, both for inbound and outbound travel as well. You know, those outbound travelers who were thinking of coming back I think oh what happens if I test positive and I'm overseas and I'm going to be stranded overseas because I can't fly back into Indonesia or back into Malaysia or, or wherever it is and one by one they started to remove them and like we were saying you know visitor numbers started to pick up as well in tandem with that and Southeast Asia I think was so has been so cautious with its reopening that you know I think Gary neither of us would have expected all the countries here to suddenly reopen with no requirements at all, right? When the borders open, that just would never have happened. But it was encouraging to see countries at least rolling it back fairly fast. So having that initial, right, we're open for vaccinated travelers. You've got to do the testing. Okay, now we'll remove pre-flight testing. Now we'll remove on arrival testing. Now you don't have to test. You just need to be vaccinated. So there has been that gradual progression throughout the, the first half. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, we, we did say, didn't we, six six to eight months ago that we thought that the, these would be lifted gradually because exactly as you say, that there's been such caution from governmental sides across the region. Um, but I think the issue was, and, and Sumi alluded to this, that the whole region was tainted with a similar perception that it was still 
partially open it, but it was still difficult. There were still restrictions. There were still Thailand passes. There was still bureaucracy. There was still pre-flight testing. There was still on-arrival testing only until only two or three months ago. But you know, a lot of that has cleared out of the way now, and particularly for markets coming into the region, thinking of Europe and North America. I think the perception now has changed that Southeast Asia is actually open. For you know, and let's hope it, it stays that way. Absolutely. So moving on to our fourth talking point for the first half of this year, and that's jet fuel. I mean, and this is, of course, linked to you know Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which we've covered in earlier episodes as well. But this is, you know, one of the big headwinds. I love that word. Go back to our buzzword bingo. But this is one of the big headwinds that is really facing the Southeast Asian tourism industry's recovery right now. You know, it's that air connectivity, which is being complicated at the minute by the fact that airlines are really facing this rise in operational costs due to the increase in jet fuel costs. Yep, jet fuel has been the talk of the first six months of the year. As you said there, Hannah, once Russia invaded Ukraine, you did see a huge spike in the price of oil and consequently jet fuel. We've also seen a a rising demand for jet fuel this year, haven't we? There's more flights in the skies. Uh, There is more demand for jet fuel. The the supply is is down, so that's pushing up prices as well. It's incredibly volatile. If you you track it over the past 12 months, uh, the oil price and jet fuel price have both been going up, but there have been peaks and troughs. There's currently a slight trough. If you look at the the current figures, jet fuel in Asia Pacific is currently up 99% compared to a year ago, which sounds a lot. That's almost 100%. But it was up over 100%, up to about 111%. So jet fuel prices have gone down in the past couple of weeks. Very, very important in Asia Pacific, because Asia Pacific accounts for 22% of global usage of uh, jet fuel. And the big looming issue, there's two big looming issues, which I think airlines are very, very concerned about. One is that over the summer, there is going to be huge demand globally for jet fuel. That's going to push up the prices. We're unsure about what's going to happen with oil supply. Um, The the Ukraine war is going to continue, but what's going to happen with OPEC and other suppliers? And then the big issue, which we'll come to in a moment, Hannah, is China. As we start to see more flights in and around China and most likely outside of China as well, there's going to be incredible demand for jet fuel from China. What's that going to do to, to the price? So there's huge uncertainties over the next six months. And you know the concerns are that that will keep uh, airline fares pretty high. Yeah. And if I can just add to that as well, you know, one of the points that Shikhar Yusuf uh, raised in one of our um, recent interviews with him is, of course, you know, the weakening um, dollar right now in the region across many currencies here um, in Southeast Asia, and airlines buy their jet fuel also in dollars. Um, so the, the weakening currency will not help them um, in terms of that. So lots of headwinds, as we said, in terms of jet fuel. And without airlift, you, it's very hard to have a, a recovery. The currency issue is a big one as well. You're absolutely right. Uh, central banks across the region now are trying to bolster their currencies to, to keep them strong. But it's not effective. And you look at countries like Japan and Korea, where you would see big uh, travel volumes probably over the next few months. Currencies are quite weak. Inflation is quite high. Uh, you know, that, that impacts discretionary spending. That will also have an impact here in Southeast Asia as well. Absolutely. So let's move on to the other hot topic, which is, I'd say, dominating, really, the, the headlines right now. I can't go uh, a week without reading this somewhere of manpower issues. Um, And this is, Gary, something that we have been saying, you know, since, well, perhaps not right at the beginning of the pandemic, because who knew it would last this long. But, you know, at least towards the end of 2020, it's just this the brain drain from the tourism industry and how difficult it's going to be again to build that back up. You know, 
re-attracting those people who used to be skilled tourism workers who left the industry to come back, you know, enticing students who have been studying tourism and hospitality to pursue a career in it and students to choose studying tourism and hospitality in the first place. You know, there were some interesting stats um, that the WTTC released their economic impact reports for 2021. And when I added up and when I added up the difference between the number of tourism workers employed in 2019 versus 2021, there was a gap of about 5.6 million workers, which is about the size of the population of Singapore. Um, so it's no wonder, you know, that we are having such issues when you lose, you know, a whole country's worth of workers um, overnight almost. Yeah, it's a global issue. And inevitable, you know, the, the industry was, we've been talking about this for what, two and a half years, Hannah, the industry was hit so hard, the infrastructure, the manpower, the resources of, of the travel and tourism industries were hit so hard, it was inevitable that recovery was going to be uh, impacted by the fact that there's just not enough people in the industry to, to, to deal with recovery. Now, you often hear this trade off between governments, between airlines, between tourism associations about who's blaming who. Who didn't predict that the recovery was going to be as quick, or particularly in Europe and North America, as it has been? I don't think that's the point. I think everybody predicted that travel demand would come back. Everybody knew that. It's been the ability to uh, re-employ people on the terms that they were offered before. And, and, you know, let's be honest, the travel industry isn't offering the same terms as it used to. And it's not as attractive to, to people, as you said, who left the industry, may have gone into other in- industries, may have set up their own businesses. But also, crucially, I think it's the next generation. It's the next generation of people now looking uh, at industries such as metaverses, cryptocurrencies. You know, they, they see digital economies perhaps uh, as the future for their own pathway and career, not travel and tourism. And this is something that you hear the travel industry kind of pushing under the carpet, trying to make excuses. You have to be realistic. Uh, it is not the industry of desire amongst young people that it used to be. And it's going to have to find ways to do that. And I, I was on an interview the other day and I said, I think most countries in our region have to start thinking about national travel and tourism development and training programs, because that's the only way you're going to start changing minds. I think at the moment it's a losing battle and the industry is going to struggle. I think we're probably a little bit luckier in our region at the moment in terms of the fact that the overall recovery hasn't been quite as quick as it has been in North America and Europe. So we haven't quite had the, the huge backlogs at airports. We have had some, but as over this next six months, if we start to see more travel flows, we're going to see the same problems. And the roll-on of that, of course, is if customer trust and customers just saying, well, we'll defer our trips into next year, which is which is going to be dangerous for the entire industry. Yeah, I mean, in the, the media has made me quite cross recently, I think, about it's just this really massive oversimplification of the problem. Like you said, you know, We've seen at least, not in this region, you're right, Gary, but, you know, in North America, across Europe, we've seen all of these airstrikes and the blame being pointed at airlines saying, how, you know, why wouldn't they have predicted all of this demand? But there wasn't the support also there from the government to keep workers in the tourism industry and to keep your aviation workers and to keep the skilled workers. And, you know, governments right now are realizing, oh, we, you know, our our economies need that boost from tourism. We'd quite like tourists to come back, and, but they've, they've completely forgotten about the infrastructure side, that you need the workers in there, that it takes time to get skilled workers, that it takes time to get border control people at airports trained up. It's not something that happens overnight. And 
yeah, so th- there's a bit of a witch hunt, I think. Lots of uh, finger pointing at airlines or at airports, but that, it's not really their issue either. You know, if they if they could, they would fly. You know, they they want to make money. There's just massive structural issues, like you say, Gary, in, in the industry that need to be addressed that haven't been addressed. Yep, I agree with that, and I think this is going to roll on through. We'll probably be talking about this through the second half of the year, Hannah. Let's let's move on to number six, and number six is. Uh, one of the key markets in the region, which was important before the pandemic, but has really taken uh, real prominence over recent months, and that's India. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, I think we've discussed this before, but obviously with the disappearance of the Chinese market, um, and we'll talk about China again in a minute, countries have really been looking around and saying, okay, well, who could fill this this gap, this China-shaped gap? And of course, you know, I, I think that they are not expecting that India would be able to completely fill this gap, but they're looking at the Indian market and saying, okay, it's a country with a big population, people who like to travel, people who have been traveling throughout the pandemic, uh, growing middle class as well, um, and quite a lot of connectivity into Southeast Asia. So let's go for that. Let's go for the Indian market. So we've seen lots of tourism boards throughout the region putting on roadshows there. Uh, attending the Indian um, travel trade shows to 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 really stimulate that market. We've seen Vietjet Air um, open up direct routes between India and Vietnam. So there's there's really been this push to try and open up connectivity to try and get travelers in. Um, but you know it's not going to happen overnight. This is going to be a, a gradual process. You can't just decide suddenly. Right, we're going to get all of the Indian travelers in. And, you know, the next month it happens. That just doesn't work like that. No, I agree. I mean, this would have happened anyway. You know, there were mills, particularly countries like Singapore, I've said this before, was, was pretty advanced in its strategy of, of attracting flights from across India. Other countries were going to do the same, but obviously the, the pandemic has highlighted this. We've seen uh, a boost in the past sort of month and a half or so. We had the Indian school summer holiday. So you started to see a lot more leisure travelers coming, particularly to Thailand. Soon we mentioned this last week in Phuket. A lot of Indian leisure travelers. Also, the the, the the weddings market is coming back as well. You know, so India will be a, a strong and important market. It would have been anyway. Um, but as we said, you know, its its importance has been highlighted because, as you say, Hannah, uh, the disappearance uh, so far during the pandemic of the China market brings us on to number seven. I guess we have to talk about what's happening in China. Uh, and there's been some pretty astonishing uh, language coming out of there in the past few days. Should we talk about what's what's happening in China, Hannah? Yeah, let's do that. I mean, you follow it a little bit closer than, than I do. So is it good news for us finally, Gary? It, it really does look um, as though things are starting to move quite quickly there. So what happened, I've been following this very, very closely. I've been producing some work for Focus Right over the past six months about what's happening in the domestic side of China and what we could probably expect over the coming months when China does reopen. But obviously, we've had this dark cloud of just not knowing really what's going to happen with China's dynamic COVID zero and how it was going to ease this policy and move back towards economic growth, which is incredibly important for China, and also travel growth. That started, the wheel started to turn about a week ago, so towards the end of June, when China slashed its quarantine period for travelers coming into the country or returnees. It was phrased as though it's mostly Chinese returnees coming into China. So from 14 days down to seven days, that's a mandatory hotel quarantine, and then three days of self-assessment at home. So essentially it's 10 days, but that's down from uh, from 17 days. That was a huge um, trigger in China, basically uh, saying to the airlines, you know, come back. Um, so it wants airlines to start flying in and out of China again. 
But if you now see some of the language in state media, it is absolutely transformative. We haven't seen anything like this in two and a half years. So although we're now into July, into the second half of the year, I'll quote you what's been said in Global Times, which is state media. And just listen to what it's saying now, because this is, a, this is such a 360 degree turnaround. So the quote written today was, China has made one of its most substantial adjustments since the COVID-19 pandemic as its embassies and consulates in 125 countries announced policies to streamline procedures for people entering the Chinese mainland. Those changes include cancelling the requirement for an antigen test 12 hours before boarding. It continues to say, the slew of policy changes has prompted an increase in flights with airline companies racing against each other to resume international flights with China. And then again, this is the sign-off, these policy changes were seen by experts as a sign of China further reopening its borders to the world. Now, please remember, this is in global times. This is Chinese state media. So those words were carefully chosen, but they say for themselves, those policy changes were seen by experts as a sign of China further reopening its borders to the world. It then reiterated that statement by saying overseas travel, in quotes, has become a buzzword on Chinese social media in the last week. Hannah, we haven't heard anything like that in nearly three years. Yeah, I mean, that's exciting stuff. I hadn't seen that yet. So yeah, I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? And I think what is going to be super interesting and about how this plays out, you know, if, if, if they are allowed, Chinese outbound travelers are allowed out and even in small numbers to start off with, is that fierce competition that there's going to be in Southeast Asia. And it's going to come down to who has been keeping their their eye on the pulse of what's been going on in China and domestic travel trends. And Gary, as you, as you always say, you know, it, they're very unique. It's very different. Um, and you need to keep updated about that. And if you have kind of let that languish and you've not been keeping up your trade contacts and you've not been keeping up with those consumer trends, you are going to be very far behind the starting line when they do open, aren't they? Yeah, 100%. Absolutely agree with that, Hannah. Everything you said there is absolutely correct. Everything has changed in China over the past two and a half years. Everything has changed worldwide in the last two and a half years. But if you are expecting or you're trying to attract Chinese travelers over the coming months, we don't yet know how this policy will roll out. It it looks promising for now. Um, But yes, you you should have been doing your homework. And if you haven't, that will certainly show in the coming months. Wow. Good news for once. Okay, let's move on to a talking point number eight then for the first half of the year. And that has been the fact that we have seen this bounce in domestic hotel occupancy and domestic trips over long weekends and public holidays. For me, this is the talking point because last year we didn't. If you remember last year, nearly every single public holiday or long weekend possibility for the first half of 2021 It was hit by a wave of COVID and every time it was cancelled, you know, whether it was Easter, whether it was Chinese New Year, whether it was Tet, every time a long weekend was scheduled to come up, (laughs) COVID went and overwhelmed it and domestic tourism just took a massive hit. And this year it's been the opposite. Every time we've we've seen uh, countries really taking advantage of that, we've seen domestic travellers going out, airlift increasing. And that's, again, a really positive, encouraging sign, I think, that there is that pent-up demand and, and people are traveling. Uh, yeah, 100%. And the, the only thing I would add to, to, to what you said there, Hannah, is you know, when the industry in Southeast Asia is covered, it generally tends to get focused mostly on international travel, the border bans, the quarantines, those kind of things. But it is easy to, to forget 
that domestic travel had so many problems, had so many restrictions, had so many lockdowns in some of our countries. Uh, and particularly, as you said, during the public holidays, that unlocking domestic travel has been very, very important for the travel industry in, in, across our region. And again, let's, you know, let's hope it stays that way. Absolutely. So on to nine, which are more airlines undergoing more restructuring. As um, Sugar Yusuf said a few weeks ago, you know, we, ha- we haven't seen really any major airlines fail during the pandemic. And that's a lot to do with them being kind of state supported amongst other things. But this year, we have seen some more major restructurings. Thai Air Asia X announced that it was going to undergo restructuring. Garuda Indonesia has just seen its restructuring approved. So the airlines here are really under a massive period of rehabilitation still, aren't they, Gary? Yeah, they are. And you mentioned AirAsia there. I saw that AirAsia is going to be start resuming flights to Guangzhou. You know, AirAsia really needs the, the China market. It's so important to it. So, you know, if, if that unlocks, that, that will help a lot of the, the, the airlines. But yeah, you're absolutely right. What, what's happened over the past two and a half years, the balance sheet damage that's done to all of the airlines, uh, whether they are, as you said, public subsidy or, or public invested or their private airlines, it's been difficult. And it's been difficult for them to start being positive in terms of turning this around because, you know, their fleets, they have to be very cautious about how they see demand patterns changing. They can't fly loss leader flights anymore. It's a difficult, it's been a difficult few months. And as, as we said at the top of the show, Hannah, Southeast Asia is playing catch up and it's still early days. We've only had this travel rebound happening for about three months. Um, and it's inevitable that the airlines were going to take time to, to, to get their confidence back, to get their financial confidence back. Um, but, you know, hopefully the second half of the year, we might start to see those frequencies increase on key routes, which will hopefully start to reduce the prices. Fingers crossed. So number 10 in our top talking points from the first half of the year is the fact that we're finally seeing intra-ASEAN travel in terms of land border crossings finally getting busy. And again, you know, we we always have so much focus on air travel that we forget that actually land border crossings really account for a huge amount of travel within the region. And slowly, slowly, as you know, the, the first half of the year progressed, we have seen those land borders starting to open the different checkpoints. And we're picking up, you know, um, there was a report that more than 12 million people have crossed between Malaysia and Singapore using the land checkpoints from April to 14th of June alone. Uh, I mean, there's no breakdown. And of course, it could be multiple people doing day trips or, or whatever, but 12 million people, <laughs> that's, that's not a, a small number. We saw reports over the weekend that as soon as Thailand removed its um, Thailand pass requirements, there was an uptick in arrivals from Malaysia over the land border, from Laos over the land border into Thailand. Those flows, which are so vital, especially for those border towns, are starting to pick up again, finally. Yeah, this is a good one, Hannah. You, you picked this. This was one of your choices. I think this is a really good one because, you know, cross-border travel often is quite informal. It's not necessarily about travel and tourism, maybe just simply crossing uh, over the border or in the case of Singaporeans, if you're coming to Malaysia, to, to fill up your car with, with petrol. But, you know, those, those things weren't available for, for so long, for two years. Uh, and obviously, it's interconnection between countries, it's interconnection of economies. Great to see that starting to, to come back, for sure. So next one, uh, I've called it Cruises to Somewhere finally starts. Um, and of course, you know, we, Singapore was very famous, I suppose, for having cruises to nowhere, which have been incredibly popular. You know, they have really educated, I think, the Singaporean public about the benefits of cruises, particularly if you remember right at the beginning of the pandemic, Gary, I think we did an episode about cruise tourism. And, you know, we were concluding this is going to take a long time to recover. There was all of the 
the backlash wasn't there from um, the cruise ships, the, the, the floating Petri dishes, as I think they were called back then. That's changed, hasn't it? Yeah, it's good. I, I think you, you made a really good point about the cruises to nowhere in Singapore. I think for two reasons. One, as you said, it really showed people what they can do on board the cruise, you know, the different ranges of entertainment, dining, the different things that those cruise operators put on for Singaporeans who were traveling for, what, two, three or, or four nights um, without any port stops during their, their trips. That was quite interesting. I think the other thing that it really showcased as well uh, was how the cruise lines have had to really upgrade their medical, their onboard medical infrastructures, which is very, very important. As, as you said, that during those Petri dishes at the start of the pandemic, there were concerns that there just wasn't enough uh, medical infrastructure to treat people if they were sick, let alone if there was actually a, an emerging pandemic. So, you know, those those things will actually make the, the cruise industry a bit stronger as we as we go forward. You know, it, it looks as though bookings are starting to go upwards as well. I think we were always sure, particularly in, in Asia Pacific, that cruises would return, that demand for cruises would return, provided you know that those elements were in place, that there was strong med- medical infrastructure, there was a variety of things to do on board. And then, of course, the itineraries have to be exciting as well. So what, what do you think, Hannah? Do you think we'll see a, a, a spike in cruise travel over the next six months? Yeah, I think so, definitely. I mean... Um... You know, I, I went to Mata Fair, which is the consumer travel fair here in Malaysia. Uh, when was that? Maybe a month or so ago. Um, and there were lots of cruises on sale there. Um, and that was before Malaysia had even, you know, opened up officially for cruising. There, there is that demand. It is popular. And, you know, so the, the, the last week um, we have seen these, these multi-stop cruises finally. So um, the Royal Caribbean cruise from Singapore arriving into Malaysia's Port Klang on the 1st of July um, and Resort World Cruises Gunting Dreams arriving into Batam and Bintan in Indonesia on the 2nd of July. So finally, cruises to somewhere starting, baby steps. But, you know, again, these are going to revitalize those port cities that, that, that rely on that. You know, Penang, for example, relies a lot on, on cruise tourism as well for the international tourism dollar. Um, and I think tourism suppliers there are over the moon to have these cruise ships back again. Yep, I totally agree. I think we are going to see a real spike in, in cruise travel, perhaps not immediately, but certainly towards the back end of the year and into 2023. I think it's going to be a growth sector to watch. And our last one is uh, Omicron. You said the problem that wasn't yet with the caveat. Um, and of, of course, you know, the beginning of the year we started, everybody was worried about Omicron. We saw Singapore, we saw Thailand tighten those border restrictions and really hold on to that until kind of March when they started to release it again and then really think about opening up and removing those frameworks and, and everything else. But of course, you know, now we're starting to see subvariants spread. Again, cases are up in Singapore to the highest levels. I mean, I don't still get the feeling from governments, Gary, that, you know, they are going to go back to this kind of lockdown situation that we were in. Um, there's certainly, I, I think, a bit more of a relaxed approach to this, would you say? I think so. I think you're starting to see some emerging concerns, particularly in Singapore and Indonesian governments in the past week or so. They've been outlining the fact that the BA5 variant, particularly the Omicron BA5, is spreading incredibly fast in Europe, North America, countries around the world. I think there was one day last week where 110 countries around the world actually recorded day-on-day increases in infections, and then the BA5 is now becoming the dominant variant in, in many markets. Again, we have to wait and see what the impact of that is here. I think the big issue in terms of how governments plan this is, I think we said a couple of weeks ago, Hannah, is what happens with the second booster uh, vaccinations? How will governments approach that? Can they afford to roll them out quickly? 
across their populations. You know, would that be a preemptive measure to hopefully, you know, not, not uh, putting in place any more border controls? The one thing that governments have learned over the past two and a half years is that once the virus is actually in the community, once it's in a country, then border controls actually become less relevant because it's, it's going to transmit anyway. The danger is, of course, that travelers might feel concerned that they traveling overseas, they could get caught in a country that doesn't quite think that way and that might um, impose restrictions, meaning they can't get back or it's more difficult or more expensive to get back. You know, we don't want to go back into that cycle, that loop that we that we had before. So I think the issue with Omicron, as you said, Hannah, you know, this is this is how we started the year and you know, midpoint of the year. It's sort of starting to come back into focus. And that simply is because of the just the volatile nature of this virus and how much it, it mutates. Where it goes from here is difficult to say. It does look as though scientists, particularly in, in Europe and North America, are concerned at the moment. But, you know, they were concerned about the first wave of Omicron and we managed to ride that. We're going to have to put our, our faith in the, the scientific community and the government's have to do that too. Yeah, absolutely. I think the only thing that we may start seeing, um, and this is a you know, conversation that's going on in Indonesia at the moment, is whether they will start imposing the fact that you need to be boosted for travel. And that's something that there's, you know, the, the, the minister there is saying may well be imposed in a couple of weeks time um, for domestic travel. The Indonesian travelers will need to have a booster dose to be able to do that. Will we see that definition of fully vaccinated change to having to be completed the primary two doses plus an additional dose maybe um, but like we said that's it's, it's so hard to predict you know I, I think I've given up trying to predict what what this virus is going to do and like you say it's just riding it out and and seeing where the chips fall yeah and as we said at the top of the show Hannah we're looking looking back over the first half of the year there's been incredible progress a lot of development a lot has happened but there are still challenges and there are still opportunities. Working out that, that coefficient of opportunity and demand over the next six months, as you say, predicting that, pretty difficult. But all things said, we're in a much stronger position than we were six months ago. Absolutely. You know, I, I produced this weekly report with these, this color chart um, of red, orange and green, and depending on lockdowns and restrictions and the severity. And towards the beginning of the year, I think my chart was, was mainly oranges a little bit of red, a little bit of green, and now everything is pretty much green. Um, you know, when I look at it from that simple point of view, yeah, it's a different world. We're in a different world right now, which is amazing. <laughs> For once, we'll end on a happy note. So that brings us to a close of our special look back at the first half of 2022. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts on comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every episode, including this one, on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each app. And please do remember, if you tune in via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you could give us a quick rating and a review, that will help other people to find the show. So that's a wrap for today. And we'll both return next week. We look forward to talking to you then. Thank you.